Yeah. 
if you're able, please remain standing as we read God's holy word. We stand in honor of God and his inspired word. I'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You may be seated. This morning as we pray, we will be remembering um, Steve and Mayan Cad. Steve and Mayan serve with Sword Productions, uh, currently living in Abu Dhabi. They use film and digital arts as a means of uh, reaching others with the gospel. Uh, they will be traveling to Uzbekistan with their home church uh, and will be doing some teaching and using uh, filmmaking as a means of communicating to um, the church and those they'll be visiting in Uzbekistan. Please pray with me. Gracious and almighty God, we love you. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of all honor and glory and majesty and dominion. You are the creator. You are the redeemer. Only you have words of life. Only in you can we find our significance, our security, our salvation. We praise you. Father, I confess that we too often fall short. Not only do we fall short of your mark, but we don't even hit the target. We are rebellious. We are bent towards our own way. Sometimes we choose to rebel, and other times we just ignorantly rebel. Please forgive us. Thank you, Lord, that you do offer forgiveness to all those who seek it in you. Father, we thank you for the work you are doing in the CAD's life and in their ministry, and we pray that they would have a, a very fruitful, wonderful time uh, in Uzbekistan. We pray that you would bless their ministry in Abu Dhabi. We pray that as they make relationships and as they talk to people about where their faith comes from, where their hope comes from, that you would use that for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the women who are on the retreat today and have been there this weekend. We pray that as they hear your word and as they fellowship with one another, that they would grow in faith. And as they return home this afternoon, they would bring that joy of the Lord to their families and to the family of God here at Grace Church. Lord, we pray for your name to be exalted. We pray that you would be magnified in our lives and through our lives. Father, we pray that 
the way we love you and love one another, that it would be said that Grace Church of Orange is blessed by you and shines forth. We pray, Lord, that our testimony would go forth and that others would know that you are the reason that we live, the reason that we hope, the reason that we do all that we do, and that we and they would give glory and honor to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you that we can sing truths to you 
truths to ourselves, truths to one another. God, we ask, would you indeed drive our dark away until your glory fills our eyes by the preaching of your word, by the hearing of your word, by the spirit helping us to understand, would we see Jesus more clearly? Would we know you more fully? We ask and we pray this by the blood and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. has made a practice of predicting the present or future demise of the church, that it's dead or it's dying or it's soon to be dead. There was a recent June 22 headline that read, American churches are closing faster than new ones can open. In the byline, more than half of Americans now say they are not members of a church. When you hear things like that, some Christians panic some Christians try harder to appeal to the world, and yet others know that the true church's survival is guaranteed, that as John Owen put it, the whole course of affairs is steered by providence. Yet, uh, the church is often sick and needs to learn the lessons that God wants it to learn, not the lessons that everyone says the church should learn, but the ones that God wants the church to learn and and healthy local churches are marked by certain characteristics, recognizable. You take a church like the church in Thessalonica. It was harassed, but it wasn't helpless. Uh, they clung to the shepherd. They clung to the word. Uh, they took it to heart like we should. But they received two letters, two letters that commended them, but also pointed out that they were imperfect. They were still in process. First and Second Thessalonians, and the idea of First Thessalonians was beloved, how those beloved of God in Christ become beloved to one another in the body of Christ in light of the return of Christ. We have this urgency to love the body of Christ and to engage in fruitful ministry. And then in Second Thessalonians, the idea of being steadfast. The idea of in the midst of the problems of life and the persecution and even battling our own pride or running into other people's pride, how do you remain steadfast in Christ in the midst of that? You could really call it a, a counterintuitive steadfastness that, re, that rejects a hopelessness. So before we begin our study of another Bible book at Grace Orange, we go through books of the Bible verse by verse primarily, I want us to look at some lessons from First and Second Thessalonians as it relates to the church, as it relates to leadership, as it relates to life in general. And I kind of had a little bit of a flashback when, when Brian was reading the scripture a few minutes ago because there was a, a moment, I don't know how many years ago it was, where I started reading the scripture. I was reading the scripture right before the, the message, and a very well-meaning friend of mine uh, blurted out in front of the whole church, hey, wait a minute, you're reading the wrong passage of Scripture. Because I had chosen to preach the same passage of Scripture two weeks in a row, just from two different angles. 
And don't, don't name names if you, if you were there and you remember it. Really well-meaning, uh, sincere person. But I'm like, actually, this is the right passage of Scripture. So I want you to know, just in case you, when you walked in, you saw we were reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you didn't get you know, stuck in a time warp and it, that took you back to September of 2021, okay? Because we actually started 1 Thessalonians in last September. And uh, what I want to do, is, some things just grow on you, right? I wasn't ready... Uh, to leave First and Second Thessalonians. Recently, when, when we were away on a, on a trip together as a family, I started looking through and just thinking, I'll do one sermon on kind of just the big ideas in these two letters. Well, it turned into three. So this week, lessons for the church. Next week, leadership lessons. The week after, life lessons. Okay, so we're going to do three weeks, and then we'll start another book of the Bible. So today, Beloved and Steadfast. So you take Beloved and Steadfast, mash them up. There you go. Uh, lessons for the church. The idea is the true church clings to Christ and Scripture, trusts the ways of the Lord, uh, does God's work, and, and looks to Christ's return. And, and there are going to be some telltale, surefire characteristics that will tell if a church is, is a true, healthy church, that Really, some, some things that every church must have uh, that they would, should reflect, they'd be characterized by. And there, I'm going to give you four must-haves for the church. And there's more, you can find more, but I'm going to boil it down to four must-haves that every church must have if we're going to be a healthy church. Now, the first point today is one that uh, is true about the church, it's true about its leadership, it's true about your life in general. And it's that the church, it's the first must have, that the church must have a regenerate membership. A regenerate membership. That, that the people that belong to the church are born again believers. They're, they're, they've been born again by the Spirit of God. They're real Christians. Even in this service, Al and Nancy Kruger, they're, they're joining the church. We've, we've heard their testimony. They're going to meet with the elders. They've done this. Many of you have done this, right? But here's the thing. There are people that sometimes slip in through the cracks, and it's possible to be at a church for a long, long time and be a member and not be, not be saved. It's possible to be at a church for a very short time and become a member and not be saved. You do as much diligence as we can. Oh, the person has a testimony. Uh, they, they, uh, they love the Lord. They want to link up with the church. But it is possible in the realm of possibility. It's, it's just been proven over and over again. Many, many people. It's happened to pastors before. Where pastors will admit they're not saved. And they get saved. You know, they, they admit it when they're, when they're convicted by their sins. And I just want to bring this out right away. That the first must have for the church is there must be a repentant membership. That is, that is regenerate. Like we're repenting of our sins on an ongoing basis and we're loving Jesus, loving the, the, the church and, and because the church is Christ's bride. The church is Christ's body. Even the church is Christ's building, biblically. Not a building like a structure like this, but something he is building. The bride, the body, the building of Christ. And it's comprised of those who are saved, those who are regenerate, those who are born again, those who are beloved of God in Christ, those who have been chosen. And you know, if you're regenerate, if you see evidence of it, that your life testifies about it. This is how it went for the Thessalonians. Right off the bat, in the first letter, in verse 4, 
Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy say, you know what? We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. It's a Greek word, elect. He chose out. He chose you out of all humanity. He chose you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, saying you had a testimony. He even says, you know what kind of people we proved to be among you, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became an example. The church must have regenerate membership that turn to God from idols. In fact, that's what verse 10 says, that you have turned to God from idols. You're serving the living God. You're waiting for Jesus to return. You're living in repentance. You're living in love. What does God do when he saves? What do we do when we get saved? What does God do? What do we do? First, what, what does God do? He gives life to the dead. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy, those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, God make you alive together with Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, he gives sight to the blind, the spiritually blind, that we would see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ, seen it in the gospel, that your, that your heart thrills and rejoices that, that Jesus in the gospel saves, that he died in, in your place, that he paid the penalty that your sins deserve, that he was your substitute at the cross. So God gives life to the death, sight to the blind. He gives faith. He gives repentance. He grants faith. He grants repentance. What do we do? We repent of our sins. We turn from our sins and believe in Jesus. We, we repent and believe. This is the scriptural Mandate, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ. You need to make sure that you are regenerate. You need to make sure that if you belong to Grace Church of Orange, you're, you're a regenerate member. Because everything you see here was written to real believers. It's written to real believers. And the thing is, I, I've, I've just been around long enough to know you can't just assume everybody's a believer. Why do you think when I preach, I, I bring it up so often that if you're not a believer, you need to become a believer? Because if I pretended or, or assumed in my preaching that, well, let's do the blanket statement. We're all believers, so let's just talk about what believers do. Some of you are sitting there going, what? Where, where am I? Because some of you know you're not believers. But some of you might be confused. Some people misunderstand the gospel. It's possible to do. Some people misunderstand the gospel. Some people misunderstand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Some people think, I, I, I'm supposed to be really, really good, right? And they heard the gospel over and over again. They think, oh, I'm supposed to be good. Or I'm supposed to be perfect. Or I'm supposed to be um, looking a certain way and doing certain things. What the gospel tells us is that Jesus changes you from the inside out, that, that Jesus, who, who chooses those who will be saved, leads you to faith in Christ. If you know that you're a Christian, it's because God did something. In fact, look with me at, at Ephesians chapter 1. It just explains it even more. In case you're confused or in case you just want to do some review. Ephesians chapter 1. It explains In verse 3, it begins, Blessed be God, the one who is worthy of all 
blessing. Who has blessed us? God, the one worthy of all blessing, has blessed us in the heavenly places with everything in the heavenly places. The perspective of the new heaven and the new earth brought about in Christ that will be brought about and it's linked with the work of the Spirit who brings it about. And he says in verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the regenerate. He's writing, he's writing to regenerate believers, people that are born again by the Spirit of God. They didn't make themselves born again. Chosen, elect again, chosen, selected, elect. It, it involves three ideas. First, to tell authoritatively. God said authoritatively, this is who I will save. It also, secondly, means that he rejects some and accepts others. It also means his ownership over those he saves. Mine. Of course, everything in all creation, God says mine, but a believer is owned by God in a special way that God decided in his secret counsel of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to save some. It's like in Genesis where he says, let us make man in our image. It's like we're going to choose who we want to save. And it happened before the foundation of the world from all eternity because God is God. And it says in verse 5 that he predestined us. He, he marked us out with a boundary beforehand. He foreordained us. He, he, that's the cause of election. And it is for what, what verse 6 says, to the praise of his glory in whom, in Christ, we have redemption. A, a purchase price has been paid. The price, the forgiveness brought about through the shed blood of Jesus that frees us from the wages of sin and we are now free to serve God. And, and it says in verse 14 that we are sealed, verse 13, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you got the Holy Spirit in the moment of conversion, the moment of faith, the moment of belief, the moment that you became regenerate. God gave you the Holy Spirit and it's a guarantee of our inheritance until we receive it. Christians rejoice over this, indicates ownership, indicates proof of validity, possession, that which is one's own. We belong to Christ. And just like in Genesis 1, where you see the creation account, and then right, right away you see a reaccount, another account of creation, just let's restate it again, uh, Ephesians 2. After, after Ephesians 1 says this, then you go into Ephesians 2 and you just kind of hear more about it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In what you once lived, you, you did this. This is how you were. But God, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, his compassion, his pity towards those who are under the, 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 the condemnation of sin, that mercy alleviates the misery that sin brings in your life. And God's emotion was aroused to your need, and he attempted to relieve you of, of, your, of your situation and remove the trouble and, and he sent Jesus to die in your place at the cross. He saw your misery. He acted on your behalf of his own good pleasure. In fact, verse five says he made the dead alive. He raised you to life. If you're a believer, you got raised to life. You're gonna be preserved. You're being, you were rescued. You were saved. It's a completed action with a continuing result. If you're regenerate, you, you, it's a permanent state. You get life, but also you experience a resurrection. All things new. Uh, those in Christ are a new creature. And he demonstrates to you, he demonstrates, and this is what it says in verse 7, Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. To demonstrate and to prove his grace. 
That's why it says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. He's writing to believers through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But that's the aftermath. That's the fruit of salvation. It's grace, not works. Where you come to Christ with nothing to offer and everything to gain, all because God is good and all because God is kind. Some of you need to, 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 to figure it out. Whether you're a member or not of this church, am I regenerate? Am I born again? Am I really a Christian? Some people will say, I can't believe you're asking the question. The Bible continually says to us, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Make sure. If you're not a believer, come to Christ as you are this very moment, and let God change your heart and change your life. It, you don't get saved because you earn it or because you're, you're, you're worth it or because you deserve it or because you make yourself better or you make yourself cleaner or you, you make yourself holy or you make yourself perfect or you make yourself look a certain way. You come to Christ as you are and let God change your heart and your life as you surrender to him and yield to his plan and keep surrendering to him and keep yielding to him. Uh, let me be clear. It's not about your past behavior or your present behavior, whether you're saved or not. It's not about your past track record that causes you shame it's not about your efforts. It's not about your badness. It's not about your goodness. It's about the eternal purposes of God in Christ. And, and that's what causes believers to rejoice. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, and you'll notice three times it's repeated in verse 6 that we who believe would be to the praise of his glorious grace. And then in verse 12, that we who, who hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then verse 14, that as we, he, we who have the Holy Spirit would live to the praise of his glory. It's all about the rejoicing in Christ and the glorifying Christ. And, and you need to know you're repentant because you're regenerate. People who are, are born again repent of their sins. And, and they're put into a new community. And by the way, it's a countercultural community, the church. It's not like the world. It's different than the world. It's a different set of standards. It's, it's in the world, people try it with every ounce of their being to, to fight and claw to make a name for themselves, to be seen, to be recognized, to be known, and maybe step on others in the process, but in the world without end, in the church, we work for Jesus and the gospel and the benefit of all. We're not working on our brand. We're working on trusting the Lord with all our hearts and leaning not on our own understanding. It's everyone in the body working together. It's, it's not against each other. It's not, you know, football season. It's not tackling your own teammates from the sidelines. It's moving in the same direction, like, like clouds, like a swarm of bees, like, like birds, like a motorcade, like a team. And, and the regenerate membership knows the gospel and, and knows this truth is humbled to repentance and even it affects the way we evangelize. It affects the way we give the gospel out. We seek to reach people with God's pure word, not our own clever gimmicks 
We, we seek to reach people with the pure word of God on a personal level, and we don't use gimmicks, we don't use tricks. We, we preach the gospel in, in the power of the Holy Spirit to real people who we care about, and we trust God with the results, and we trust God to work in hearts, and we trust God to open hearts to the gospel. And we call people to faith and repentance and to obey Jesus Christ. It leads to hope. It leads to serving Jesus. It, it, it leads to the, the love of the brethren continuing. The love of the brethren continue. Today, make sure you're regenerate. Make sure you are a regenerate and repentant and rejoicing church member. And, and, and go with what the Bible says. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And if you test positive, rejoice. Church must have regenerate membership instead of self-effort. It leads us quickly to the second must-have, and it's the church must have a receptivity to the Word of God. That the regenerate church has a receptivity to the Word of God. And you'll notice, staying in 1 Thessalonians 1 with me, you'll notice it says in verse 6, you became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You became an example to all the believers. You received the word of God. And then a verse you've heard me quote a bazillion times. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13. You should have it memorized by now. I've said it so many times. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is foundational. It tells us that the word of God is not the word of man. It is from God. God is the source of it. God is its author. There's an emphatic wording in verse 13 that demands this translation. It is from God. It is, it is from the, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it's, it's inspired by God. It's from the mouth of God. The Greek word is theopneustos. When you say it, you feel smarter than you really are. It's for the will of God. It's for the glory of God. It's for the good of man. It's profitable, as 2 Timothy 3 tells us. And they received it. They welcomed it. They didn't just put the welcome mat out and said, you know, if anybody brings it to, a, to us, we'll, we'll be good with it. Because see, there's a welcome mat out. No, they opened the front door and they said, you come on in and you clean house, God. Here's our hearts. Our hearts are laid open and bared before the one with whom we have to do and we are accountable to you and we've been saved by you and we need your word because it works in us. It, what does it do? It convicts us. It converts us. It changes us. It builds us up. It sanctifies us. Psalm 19 says the word is perfect and sure and right and pure. It, it, it revives our hearts. It, it makes us wise. It enlightens our eyes. It, it does something. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law, O oh God. I love what you say. It, it will not return empty. It will accomplish what God purposed it for. Isaiah 55. And so that's why 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We see in the word the light of the, of the knowledge of God, the light of the gospel seen in the face of Christ. That's why we're to study it. 
It, it ought to be known in our hearts. It, it's profitable for us. It is living. Hebrews 4.12, it is living, it is active, it is sharper than a double-edged sword. It, is, it goes as far as the piercing of joints and marrow, and, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's why some people don't want to read it. That's why some people don't want too much of it. I've said it over and over again recently, but most of us get far less Bible than we need and practice it far less than we need. You might look at what I do in the Bible every day and go, oh no, you get enough. No, I don't. No, Psalm 1 tells me that, uh, that, that I, I'm to meditate on it day and night. That's, my, that's, 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 that, that's the goal. And what, what they did is they received the word and then they gave the word. You notice it, it said that in, in chapter 1. It said that not only did you receive it, but the word of the Lord, verse 8, sounded forth from you. you. You don't just take it in for yourself, but you give it out. You benefit greatly and then you give it out. It's like glasses, it gives you clear, clear vision. It's like a first aid kit. It's a help. It's not a big baseball bat to bash you or others over the head with. It's, it's like glasses. It helps you see clearly. It's like a first aid kit that brings needed help. As God speaks through the scriptures. This is what one old Puritan said. God speaks in the scriptures. And by it teaches the church. His authority in the scriptures is greater than all. Another Puritan said this, God speaks by the true church, but he speaks nothing by her but what he speaks in the scriptures. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we preach the word. This is why we cling to biblical theology. When we preach the gospel, we call people to repent from their sins and believe in Jesus. And we tell them, it doesn't mean that your life is going to be perfect and everything will work out the way you want it. It, it, it's costly, but it's worth it. It's, and we preach the word, and we let God do what he will do. And we, we cling to biblical theology. First and second Thessalonians is chock full of doctrines that God teaches about himself. The one true God in three persons. We know that there is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit and the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, and salvation based on Christ's death, not our works, and sanctification as it relates to personal purity, and diligence in our work, and, and the motivation to please God, and discipleship, and, and, and big is the end times, right, in these two letters, the end times, Jesus is coming. These are the things that, that God teaches in, in this letter that we must receive. And, and, and the biggest among them, right up there with the end times, is the inspiration and authority of Scripture that these two letters teach. It's foundational to the Christian faith. And it's beyond the simple sayings. If, if simple sayings are good. But if you never go beyond the simple sayings, you miss a lot. You can miss a lot. Like, have you ever heard this one? The Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Our fellowship of churches, even, that we're a part of, that was kind of been the unofficial motto. It's not a bad saying. It's a simple saying. But if you never go past that. And, and here's another one. You ever heard this one? Or you might have said it. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. You ever heard that one? Not a bad thing. It's like saying, I really want to do what, what God's word says. I believe it. And it's kind of the fruit of a regenerate heart. A believer says that. That's a believer wants to do that. A believer wants to... Please God and do what he says in the word. 
But it needs to go beyond that. You need to think it through. That's why I will say, with whatever breath God gives me, that we are opening up the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. And you know, hopefully you'll start looking those words up, and I'll keep explaining them. Because they mean something. They mean something. Inspired. It's a Bible word. God worked for the human authors to communicate his revelation. Again, the Greek word makes you feel strong, smarter than you are. Theopneustos. It's a cool word to say. But it means God breathed. It means it's spoken from the mouth of God. God is the ultimate source of the scriptures. When we say that the Bible is inspired, we say God is the source of the scriptures. We say it's inerrant. What does that mean? It means the Bible does not affirm any falsehood of any sort. It's the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy says, it is without fault or error in all that it teaches. Christians believe that. That's why you bank your life upon it. That's why you, you live a counterintuitive life and you don't cave to all the ways of the world because you say, no, this, this book, this book is, is driving my life. We say it's infallible. What does that mean? It means that it, it cannot have any error and it never make a mistake. It will never lead you in the wrong way. As the Westminster Dictionary put it, it's completely trustworthy. It's a guide to salvation and the life of faith which will not fail to accomplish its purpose. Why? Why is it infallible? Because God is perfect. The, the, the God who gave the word is perfect. So of course his word is inspired and inerrant and infallible. And of course he is perfect and all-powerful. And he can preserve that word even among people like us who are not infallible. We say it's authoritative. What does that mean? It means that it possesses power. Speaking of the power it possesses, it's from God, and as the Westminster Confession puts it, the Bible ought to be believed and obeyed. Why? Because it's power. It's the, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It comes from a, a Greek word, power is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite. It's powerful to do things. It does things. And it's all due to its divine author. It's not because of us. Not because someone came up with a really cool-sounding translation. No, God is the source, as one dictionary of theological terms puts it, God is the source, the, excuse me, the Bible from God is the source and the norm for such elements as belief, conduct, and the experience of God. You don't know God apart from the Bible. You know he exists apart from the Bible. You know that he, he created the world, but you can't know God savingly apart from the Bible. That's where you find out all the things we teach. That's why we keep going back to the Bible. If I stand up here with another book, you take me out, all right? All the elders, just get up here and get me down from here, okay? Put somebody up here who will open up the Bible. It's going to affect how we approach not only evangelism, but discipleship, how we say this is how you grow in Christ. We receive the word, we give the word. We grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. We want the word. We need the word. We live the word. We give the word. And God saves and sanctifies as he sees fit. He grows us in Christ, and we behold the work of God. We don't attribute the change to ourselves or to someone else. We might say, there's a really good example I followed, or that person really impacted my life amazingly, because they kept pointing me to Jesus in Scripture. If you go to 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8, probably two of my favorite verses in the Bible as it pertains to life and ministry, 
It says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. There's the beloved. You share your life. You share the word of God. And those who are being saved and sanctified receive the word and you're inspired to glorify God. Doesn't matter how young or old you are, kids, this is for you. You can, you can share your life in the word with fellow believers. Students, it's for you. Singles, married, widowed, everybody. Doesn't matter what age or life stage you're in, it's, it's, it's for believers. If you're wayward and you're wandering from God, you need to come back in, in, in repentance. If you're wondering about things, you can still do this. If, you, if all your questions haven't been answered, you can still do this. If you're, uh, if you're saying, I want to be a witness for Jesus, I'm resolved to please him, you're doing this. If you're sincere and you try and you fail, you can still do this. If you're lonely, you can do this. If you're busy, you can do this. If you have too much time on your hands, you can do this. You should do this. And if you have too much people's time on your hands, you can do this. Everyone to whom the Lord calls to himself can do this. You share your life in the word. And those being saved and sanctified receive the word and are inspired to glorify God. And it inspires you to glorify God. And just, the beat goes on. The receptivity to the word of God instead of harboring lies. This is what the church must have, a regenerate membership and a receptivity to the word. And thirdly, maybe kind of unpopular to say, but a righteous community a pure community, a righteous community. Uh, where there, If you go back to chapter 1, notice that he says that you became imitators of us. In verse 6, you received the word of much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that, verse 7, you became an example to all the believers in all these other places. The, the church must be a righteous community. Be imitatable examples. Don't just imitate people that are, that are good examples, you, you strive to be one as well. Uh, not perfect, but b- becoming pure. And, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky for us because we get ideas of what words mean and what biblical concepts mean that are sometimes different than what the Bible teaches. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So there's a string of imitation and example giving that ought to be taking place. Uh, Ephesians 4, in fact, uh, says, uh, I, I beseech you, I exhort you, I encourage you to walk in a manner, live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, the calling to salvation in Christ. And what happened, interestingly, about the Thessalonian church, it was mostly a church that pleased God, but there was an unrighteous minority. But here's the amazing thing in the, in the, in the perfections of God. The church is holy in spite of unholy members, and we're all unholy members. We're be, uh, in Christ, we're becoming holy. He's making us holy. He is holy, and he sets apart his church. But maybe your example, or your, your, excuse me, your definition of holiness or purity might be a little tweaked. You might think that means I gotta be perfect. I gotta look just a, a right way. I've gotta kind of put on a good face. Um, w- interesting, the, the Im- imitate an example. It's the idea of a testimony, a testimony of faith. You're an imitatable example. You see something good, even, and you copy it. You're like, I want to be like Alan. I want to be like Steve. I want to be like Gabby. I want to be like Nancy. I want to be like these people I see. I just named four people in the room, by the way, not trying to make anyone feel left out. 
but you see something and you go, yes, I, I want to imitate their faith in Christ while you don't feel righteous or holy. No one, if you feel righteous or holy today, let's talk afterwards because something's wrong. Okay, if you're sitting there, this is not a puffed up thing. It's not like, I'm righteous or I'm holy, I'm better or whatever. Nothing like that. Nothing could be, could be further from the truth. It's the idea that God is at work in us to conform us to the image of Christ while we're living, battling our sin, battling our pride, doing the issues of life, and we have an imputed righteousness. We become the righteousness of God in Christ because God, by, by, by grace through faith, makes us righteous. And he even says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Well, that means I'm going to make you holy. It doesn't mean make yourself look good. It doesn't mean make yourself feel good. It doesn't mean make yourself feel better than others. He's saying, I will make you like I am so you keep yielding and surrendering to me because Christ is holy. The reason we're called to, to a holy life or a sanctified life, a life set apart to God is because Christ is holy. In fact, one person a long time ago said, I read the Bible and I find holiness to be God's supreme attribute, which is interesting. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology said, it does not seem proper to speak of one attribute of God as being more central and fundamental of another. But if this were permissible, the scriptural emphasis on the holiness of God would seem to justify its selection. One time, James Montgomery Boyce was speaking to a discipleship group on the attributes of God, and he said, I want you to list the attributes of God in, in what you think biblically is the most, most important. And they, they put love first, then wisdom, then power, then mercy, then omniscience, then truth, and at the end of the list, they put holiness. And Boyce said, I was really surprised. Why I'm surprised is because I've never read in, in, in the Bible, truth, 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 or love, love, love about God, but I keep reading over and over again the cry of the angels, holy, holy, holy. And that the Bible refers to God's holiness more than any other attribute. But the thing about the holiness of God and the thing about being a righteous community is, and this is what I want you to grasp today, it's counterintuitive, it is, it's, it, this is what it means. Not that the pressure is on you to perform. The pressure is off you and I. God does the work. We, we go along. But you don't have to feel like you have to perform or pretend. What you do is you just live your life honestly. You live your life honestly. You, you don't try to be a Christian success. In fact, in the book Man's Search for Meaning, uh, Nazi death camp survivor Viktor Frankl wrote this. He says, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and, and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. He said, success like happiness cannot be pursued. It is the unintended side effect of your personal dedication to a cause greater than yourself. It's a byproduct of your surrender to a person other than yourself. The idea is surrender to Jesus. He'll, he'll put the pieces where they need to be. Just, just, just think about fixing your eyes on Jesus and, and loving those around you. Not just Christians, but everyone. Your neighbors and your coworkers and people who feel or seem far off from God. And what, it will, what, what you will see emerge is it will affect the way you treat other people. When you surrender to Jesus and you keep doing that, 
you find that you become very careful with other people. You become careful how you act towards them, how you talk about them, how you talk to them, and how you treat them. And you say things like, I, I, I don't want to cause my brother or sister in Christ to stumble. I don't want to judge them falsely. I, I want to make and keep the peace. And by the way, if you don't do that, you're working for the enemy. Puritan John Trapp said this, either our beds are soft or our hearts hard that can rest when the church is at unrest. Either our beds are soft or our hearts are hard that can rest when the church is at unrest. But oftentimes we find ourselves kind of buying into the addictive me-first culture and want the quick fix, want the convenience, uh, the easy solution, maybe there's confusion, maybe we have confused morals or ethics and some of those anchors sometimes are missing and we want to be entertained and what happens is we start looking at people like enemies when they're, our body, they're part of the body of Christ and they need to be uh, loved by us and, and then we see people that aren't in the body of Christ and we see them as enemies and they need to be loved by us as image bearers, as people who are who are, who are made in the image of God. And what plays into that is a disrupted family life and fragmented homes and a loss of community. I read the other day that the average person moves every three years and that in, you'll move 11.4 times in your life. Uh, what happens when that happens is you lose the sustained support of close friendships. But what happens with the regenerate membership that receives the word is they, they love repentantly. And what happens is Ephesians 4 kind of things. In Ephesians 4, it, it speaks of being diligent or eager to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That you say, uh, I've, there's a bond that keeps us together, and therefore, I'm going to be at peace with my fellow Christians. And you cannot be at, at peace with, with the Father if you're at war with his children. And one person put it this way, division is better than agreement in evil. That someone would stand up and say, that is wrong. Like, let's say you're in the mix of something with somebody, or you got to dust up with somebody, you got a problem, or even a long-standing feud. What if, what if Jesus was standing watching? And I mean, like, literally, like, you're doing your thing, you're saying your stuff, you're sending your messages, and you look up, and you literally see Jesus. And he's going like, keep going, Proceed. You would wake up and you'd realize there's a heaven and a hell looming. I need to repent and reconcile it with my differences. It's kind of like when, when the parents walk in and the kids have been fighting. And what we would do in the body, if we want to be a righteous community, is do what Ephesians 4 says. To maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And know that we are joined together as Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 just outlines so beautifully that we are to grow up in Christ, in, in Christ in the body, and, and we are to build each other up in love. We're to live our life not like a pagan, but we are to live our life like a believer, not darkened in our mind, not, not alienated from God and others, but to take off the old, put on the new, be done with the old, grow, it's, which is growing more corrupt. One person says every trait of the old man's behavior is putrid, crumbling, 
or inflated like rottening waste or cadavers, stinking, ripe for being disposed of and forgotten. We're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, as Ephesians 4 tells us, put on the new clothes of the Christian, which are created in holiness and righteousness, as what it says in Ephesians 4.23. Put on 4.24. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then you find yourself able to be kind and tenderhearted and forgive each other. A righteous community instead of unrighteous isolation. These are the must-haves the church must have. Regenerate membership, receptivity to the word, and a righteous community. And one last, and I think this one you'll go, of course, this is First and Second Thessalonians, so of course this is, this is a must-have. The church must have a realistic perspective we must have an end times perspective that live in light of the return of Christ and know that we don't exist for ourselves and we don't exist for the community. We exist for the glory of God and we're to make a difference in others' lives. We're to be inspired by and inspiring other believers and churches and Christians to worship and love and good deeds. But how we live will affect the community in which we live. If we give the community a view that this is just a party here on earth, it will appeal to and, and foster consumerism. If we give the impression there's more to live for than what we see on earth, it's going to challenge people to something greater than themselves. It will create contributors. Because you have to have this end times perspective. They're, all the way through these books and especially these letters, and especially in chapter four of the, of the first letter, it speaks of the coming of the Lord. It speaks of the appearance of Jesus. There's a coming of Jesus. There's an appearance of Jesus. There is even a revelation of Jesus, the revealing of Christ that we are awaiting. And we know we'll experience persecution now and problems and the pride of others and our own pride. Uh, those persecuting Christ and his church will receive God's righteous judgment. But what we are to do is to, to fellowship with one another and feel the pain together as we look for Christ's return. We don't do it in a vacuum. We do it in the painful life. Pain unites the body. Missionary surgeon Paul Brand, he was working with lepers, and he told of working for years to help a leper named Sadan, who was from India. And they became very good friends, and Brand helped repair his wasted hands and fingers. And Sadan was returning to his family in Madras, India, and Brand prepped him for what was going to happen because he says, look, they may or may not accept you, and you can't feel, you know you can't feel the, the ends of your extremities. You can't feel your hands, you can't feel your feet because of the leprosy, and he couldn't feel pain. Goes home, they have a reunion dinner, and he goes to his, who is home later, and he, he lays down on his cot, and he he drifts off to sleep and he wakes up and he finds that a, a rat had gnawed off, gnawed off part of his finger. He wraps up his hand. Couldn't sleep the next night. He was like, I, I'm not going to sleep. I'm just going to stay awake all night. And, but he, and he was trying to read a, an accounting book by the light of a kerosene lamp. He can't stay awake any longer. He falls off to sleep and his, his other hand hits, uh, drifts onto the, the kerosene lamp. He wakes up in the morning and finds that his, his other hand is badly burned. So he wraps them both up, goes back to Dr. Brand. And Dr. Brand said, when I was unwrapping his bandages, I, he wept. 
and I wept with him. And that he said, I feel as if I've lost all my freedom in life. How can I be free and without pain? How can I be free without pain? And Brand said this. Brand said, pain serves as a vital role in protecting and uniting church members just as it does in guarding the cells of your body. And that deep emotional connections link human beings together like dendrites link cells in your body. And he said, the body poorly protects what it does not feel. So if we're going to have a realistic perspective on life now and life in light of the return of Christ, we have to be close enough with one another to feel the pain together. Because Jesus is coming. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix our eyes on what is eternal, where Christ is. Uh, look not at what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. For what is unseen is eternal. And I know how easy it is, because I've seen it in myself too much recently, how easy it is to be high-strung about things or to be on edge with things and people, such that you're not as patient as you could be and I want to remind you, in Christ, every aspect of your life, everything you're going through, everything you'll see, everything you'll feel, is one more reminder that you need Jesus, and he's coming. Eternity is looming. When you're going through the pain, when you're going through the process, and even the persecution of the problems of your own pride, I think we should look each other in the eyes and say, this world is not our home. Jesus is coming. Let's get together soon. Let's take as many people with us to heaven as we can. We're one step closer to home. Something good is coming because someone good is coming. And I hope you're looking forward to that. Thomas Watson said, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. The true church clings to Christ, clings to Scripture, has these must-haves, a regenerate membership instead of self-effort and receptivity to the word instead of harboring lies and righteous community instead of unrighteous isolation and a realistic perspective instead of this defeatist mentality that is so common. That's the kind of church that Jesus blesses. You know, people in sports, they're always uh, sportsmen, they like to uh, guarantee victory. We're going to win, you know, coming up. They can't do that. They can only hope and try. But God can. Nothing will defeat his church. That habit of people saying, you know, the church is dying. The church's survival is guaranteed. It will thrive. Everything is steered by providence. John Flavel Puritan once said this, be not too quick to bury the church before she is dead. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are in charge of your church. We want to be humble and and gentle, but also bold to come to your throne and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We find ourselves needy often, and Lord, we need you. We need one another, and we pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in our hearts, in our lives, together as a church. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're able as we close?
gather. If you've joined us on the live stream, we want to pray God's blessing in your life and hope that you could be with us soon in person. Uh, but it is a, a treat and a privilege for God to gather us and we be the recipients of 
being able to worship him, but also fellowship with one another. Uh, don't leave right away. Uh, I want to go outside and talk to some people. Don't leave the premises right away. Uh, be a blessing to someone today because we're going into a world tomorrow, uh, maybe even this afternoon, where you need to interact uh, as a believer uh, with many people who are not living by the same worldview and don't look down on them. Pray that God would open their heart to the gospel. We close with Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. And now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, the blood of, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. The Lord be glorified, be honored in and through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air.